Well, good morning. Welcome to Young Sun Baptist Church English Sunday School class. It is the 16th of April, 2023, and we are going to finish today our lesson that we started last week on Joshua chapter 9 and 10. We were looking at Gibeon turning failure into victory. So if you have notes from then, you can pull those out and we'll get right back into it. By way of brief reintroduction, we were discussing through Joshua chapter 9 and 10 the situation with the five kings um, of Canaan that were coming after uh, Israel and, and Gibeon. We were talking about how Gibeon worked wilily and fooled Joshua and the princes into accepting them as a treatise partner from a far country when in fact they were only about 25 miles away. And the picture that this was for Gibeon being saved the only way they knew how without scripture, just like Rahab was saved the only way she knew how without scripture. And so we talked about that picture a little bit. We got to um, the major points of the fact that Joshua believed the enemy, that was Roman numeral number one, and because their words and actions were deceptive and their deceptions were successful. Then we also got into... Um, Roman numeral number two, enlisting the enemy where Joshua made this change and uh, used the oath and, and kept his word to them, but also made his mistake work for him. And then God redeemed the mistake. Was that what the enemy? Hmm? What the enemy? Enlisting the Thank enemy you. was number two. Enlisting the enemy. And then we got to Roman numeral three, where we'll start today to be able to finish up defending the enemy. So. When you make an agreement with your enemy, expect to end up paying a price, but as we've already alluded to, the key to reversing mistakes was found in Hosea 10:12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. And we talked about how merciful God was to Joshua. Letter A there under Roman numeral 3 was that the king of Jerusalem called upon five armies to destroy Gibeon in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly. Fear has a lot of control over people. Because Gibeon was a great city, as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, set, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Pyram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, gathered themselves together, went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So we saw this, that the five kings of the, the, those kings of Jerusalem weren't making war against Joshua at this point. They were making war against Gibeon. And that's kind of significant, right, that one, that puts them in a place where they're a lot closer, they're all together. Joshua wouldn't have to move one city by one city. We brought that up. But another point to really see here is why were these five kings of the Amorites attacking Gibeon and not Israel? So their fear turned them on to Gibeon. So one thing that uh, Pastor brought up when he, when he preached through these, uh, these chapters was how the five kings of the Amorites 
could be a type of our five senses and that this could be a picture of the war of the flesh and the spirit when we get saved. Gibeon has recently been saved. They were, again, as I said, saved the only way they knew how, right? Yes, they lied in order to be saved, but they, they didn't seek war against Israel. They wanted peace with Israel because they knew their God was more powerful than them. And we see the indication here that Gibeon was the most powerful of these cities, right? The reason that Adonizedek feared this situation was because Gibeon was the more mighty city, the more mighty people, and yet they feared God enough to submit to him no matter what the cost was. Right? My, my life is at your mercy. Save me. Right? They became servants and they were happy to do that. The most mighty of the people became servants on purpose to the God of Israel. And that made the other kings of the Amorites fearful because they weren't as mighty as Gideon. But in the same way, our flesh doesn't go away when we get saved. Right? We still have the same desires. We still have the same inclinations. We still have the same fears and the same failures and the same sinful nature. And that sinful nature will make war against your spirit immediately and continually throughout your life as a Christian. So if these five kings are a type of our five senses, right, the way that we see and feel and understand the world, then it's just as they made war against Gibeon, which was newly adopted into the family of Israel, then it, the war against them could be a picture of our own flesh making war against our spirit as we're converted. So it's a, a thing to pull out here where there's there are multiple layers to Scripture, and the more you read them and the more that you pray for God to reveal these things to you, yes, they have absolute historical value to something that actually happened, but they bridge the gap to modern application to teach us something about the, the spiritual life that we have today. So we saw letter B there, the Gibeonites, they didn't say, oh yeah, we're mighty, we're going to stand up and we're going to fight these other five people all on our own. They immediately called upon Joshua for protection. So that's another lesson for us as, as Christians. Don't think we can do things in our own power, regardless of who we used to be. Follow the feet of God and watch him deliver us. And so letter B was that the Gibeonites called upon Joshua for protection. We saw that in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 10. And then letter C, Joshua calls upon the Lord for victory. So the Gibeonites rightly called upon Joshua, and Joshua rightly called upon God. So then uh, for under letter C there in uh, letter or number 1, Joshua believed the divine promise. According to Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The promise was given when Joshua became leader of the nation in chapter 1, and when he anticipated attacking Jericho in chapter 6, and when he attacked Ai after that humiliating defeat in chapter 8. Then Joshua not only believed that divine promise, he acted upon faith, and God's power was released. So in uh, verses 9 through 11, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night, and the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with the great slaughter of Gibeah and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Aram, and smote them at Azekah, and unto Machedah. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Aram, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. There were more which died from the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. This is the, the great thing to see here is that Gibeon rightly called on Joshua and didn't fight their own battle. 
Joshua rightly called on the Lord, and though he was fighting the battle, he was doing it with the Lord's blessing and direction, and God fought the battle to a greater extent than Joshua and the people did. So they still were fighting the battle, as God allowed them to do, but God was the one literally providing the miraculous delivery here. The, Joshua ordered this all-night march. It was 25 miles uphill, and so that's a lot of work. Right? <laughs> Believe me, it, the things that God calls you to do will be work. Right? There, there is nothing we can do as a calling um, in our service to Jesus Christ that will not involve work. It's not that work saves us, but work should be done in the name of the Lord. Jesus said when he was 12, why are you surprised that I'm here? You knew I should be about my father's business. Business is not easy, no matter what definition of the word you use. It is work, right? So don't, don't think work is a, is a dirty four-letter word. Work has a very, very good purpose. And there, we have hero stories throughout our um, history of the hero who's going to vanquish the enemy, always has to fight through loads and loads and loads of armies and climb the side of a mountain and end up with no weapons and no energy and no food and no water before he faces the fresh enemy and then still finds a way to vanquish him, right? And that is, it's a Bible concept, right? The, the, the whole concept of marching all night, of, of Gideon reducing his forces, right, to a tenth of what he had before, all of these ways to make it absolutely sure it's not in your own power but it's the lord that delivers you in the end so a forced march of 25 miles done that it's not fun <laughs> promise it's a lot of work uphill even worse <laughs> okay whatever provisions they thought they had they were gone right when they got there they needed to fight because they needed vittles they needed spoil right they needed water and they needed food and you're fighting as hard as you can for your life after a 25 mile all night march because you need to grab stuff from the enemy as you as you take that city so god assisted that army by sending those huge hailstones and they only hit the enemy soldiers i don't know if you've been in a hailstorm before it is pretty chaotic and i've never seen a hailstorm where somebody could be parked here and somebody could be parked here and that car's demolished and that one's not i mean everybody's got a little bit of damage right i have seen that with a tornado tornadoes will come through and pull up an entire house and the ones next door don't even get their shutters rattled. The, that is undescribable. Um, but the, as far as hailstorms go, it's, it's usually pretty chaotic. So it's, it's a powerful miracle here. But God, what, is, what he's trying to tell us as the reader of this is that he's waiting to show you, when you step out in faith to do what he's told you to do, he's waiting to make the delivery and to show his power through you. Number three there. Joshua publicly prayed in the midst of the battle, verses 12 through 15. Uh, then, spake Joshua, then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. That's huge. Uh, and then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. The miracle of the hailstorm was nothing. It was an afterthought compared to the miracle of extending the day so that Joshua could finish the battle and secure a complete victory. So you see here in verse um, 12, then spake Joshua to the Lord. 
in the sight of Israel. And he's, but he's speaking to the Lord in the sight of Israel, and what he said is not, O oh Lord. What he said is directly speaking to the sun and to the moon. Right? This, this miracle is likened unto those like Elijah and, and, and others where the power of the Spirit of God was upon them, and they knew it, and they said something or did something, and God hearkened and did it, right? God gave them that, that, that maneuver, that uh, calling down fire from heaven. He didn't say, God, send down fire from heaven. He called down fire from heaven, and fire from heaven came down, right? In this, Joshua is, is speaking unto the Lord, but telling the sun and the moon that are subordinate to the Lord what to do. And then God did it. And the power there is not Joshua's. The power is still the spirit of the Lord being enacted against his own creation, which he has every right to do. Still, even within Christian circles, this miracle is contested, if you will. There are lots of different views about it. I've picked out just a few. Um, uh, Gleason Archer was a scholar, multi-generational multi scholar and, and professor. Um, he, the, his statement on this was, Hasted not to go down, from verse 13, suggests a retardation of movement, not a complete cessation. The sun and the moon didn't stand still permanently and then suddenly go down, but they were held back so that the daylight was lengthened. God stopped the sun and the moon and then retarded the rotation of the earth so that the sun and the moon set very slowly. Such a process would not, as some claim, create chaos all over the globe. So if we know, in our modern sense, that the sun and the moon are not moving around the earth, right? We know that the movement through the sky is because the earth is revolving and rotating, right? The, the, the moon does move, but the sun is not. The sun is stationary, we're moving around it, right? So we have these, these countering things. The moon is supposed to move as the sun goes down, but the sun's only going down because the earth is rotating. This statement here is trying to say, well, you know, if, if, if God stops the earth from moving and stops the moon from moving, then that messes up tides, geomagnetic fields, all these different things that for an entire day, there would be chaos throughout all creation and it would probably destroy everything, right? And that's man thinking from a man-centric, observable, observable science perspective. And so he's trying to explain this as if he stops the sun and the moon, Right? Just stopping the moon without stopping the earth might not have that immediate issue, and then you could just slow the earth down some and then catch it back up in a minute. Right? So that's, that's a way to try to explain it, to try to get around the science of it. Then uh, Warren Wiersbe, who's um, known for commentaries and other books um, as, a, as a pastor, the sun and moon remained on their normal course, and it only appeared that the day was lengthening because of the way that God caused their light to be refracted. Verse 13 states twice that the sun stood still and once the moon stayed. However, excuse me, these verses need not describe a permanent situation, but only the beginning of the miracle. God stopped the sun and the moon in their courses and then controlled their gradual descent, all the while causing the light to be refracted for a much longer period of time. Since verses 12 through 13 are poetical in form, a quotation from the unknown book of Jasher, apparently. Some students interpret these words symbolically. 
They, they say, oh, God helped the, them, so Israel accomplished the work of two days in one day. However, Joshua's prayer sounds very much like one that intervened on the normal course of natural events in a supernatural way. And I don't think that there would be the footnote of there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. I don't think we would get that footnote if it was just God made it seem like the day lasted two days. Because we've all had relative time where it, an hour drags on, right? Or six hours is gone like that. We've all had relative uh, time things. That's, that's not what's happened here. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that. So why do we always try to explain away miracles in our modern world? Our faith is built entirely upon miracles. So if we exclude any of them, we would exclude all of them. That our God is powerful enough to do exactly what he said he did. Amen? That's right. There's no reason to have to try to explain it. If we do observe something that leads us to understand how God could have done this within natural law, that's fine. He's still the one who designed the natural laws. So it doesn't make it any, any less miraculous if we can explain it, if we can understand it. But we don't have to have things less miraculous because there's no way to explain Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection without miracles. There's no way to explain that lots of things that are substantially foundational to our biblical uh, worldview without miracles. Miracles are foundational to the Word of God, and the Word of God is foundational to our faith. We don't have to explain it away to make other people feel better about their lack of faith. C.S. Lewis wrote this, The mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in the process of relapsing from Christianity to mere religion. And religion never saved anybody. Religion has its good points, but religion never saved anybody. There was an email circulating many years ago with a false claim that NASA scientists found some glitch in a computer simulation of how long time has existed and that there was a, the, the only way to fix this period of time was in calculating for the one extra day in Joshua's time and the couple of hours that God ran the, the sundial back for Hezekiah. But this is impossible because we have no evidence anywhere of where the sun, moon, and stars were in the, in, in the sky during either of these events. We can't say when this actually happened. It's a false argument that was made to try to unsubstantially poke at science um, and it's not something that anybody should use in an apologetic argument for uh, for the Bible or for Christianity so off track a little bit there needless to say we as humans often can debate about things that really shouldn't be a point of debate and the devil loves that because it gets us off of the point the point is God is in absolute control of everything the point is not what, what can man do and what has man done? Why are we talking about it this way or that way? Okay. Then number four in your notes there, Joshua calls his army to victory, verses 16 through 28. Here we see that the five kings were hiding in a cave. Joshua commanded stones to be rolled over the mouth of that cave and then mopped up the rest of the forces in verse 20, leaving only a few who returned to doomed cities, which would later then become the possession of Israel. In the middle of the battle, Joshua performs a public ceremony of victory that gives confidence and strength to his army. We see that in verses 24 and 25. It came to pass 
when they brought out the kings unto Joshua, the Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with them, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near, put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. Joshua's words were an echo of what God had said to Moses and then to him. And here Joshua is a picture of Christ who has already defeated his enemies and will one day again return to destroy them forever. We too have victory over all the things that are going on through Jesus Christ, according to Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then also in 1 John 5, 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So through this biblical, historical account, though it's no excuse for carelessness, we don't depend upon God to do everything with, as other religions say, inshallah kind of hope, right? If, if God wills it, then it's going to happen. If he doesn't, it's not. So it doesn't matter what choices I make, that hyper-Calvinist approach to life. We don't, we don't believe that, right? Because God has given us a will. We, we know every single day that we have a will to do things. We know God has a perfect will, and then we, we know that he also gives us the ability to either choose to accept him or not. If we were a bunch of robots that had no choice, like the angels, then it wouldn't give him the same glory as it would for him to do things, to show his love, for us to observe those things, to experience those things, and to love him back. It's the, the glory he deserves is far above him just making us worship him. Amen? So this, this account is no, no excuse for carelessness, but it's a great encouragement to see God's mercy and his redeeming power when his imperfect people repent of our mistakes and our sins and our transgressions and follow him with our whole heart. And we'll see um, later the, the testimony of men like Caleb, who every time Caleb is mentioned, um, it's the God says in Scripture that he followed the Lord with his whole heart, or he wholly followed the Lord his God. And what a great testimony for that to be. First John 5, 14, a little later than the verse we just read, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Amen. We may not be the one with the power and the confidence to ask that God bring down hail on our enemies or hold the sun still in the sky, but we don't need that kind of a miracle. Right? The miracles that we need in our lives now are much more personal. They're much smaller. They're much more identifiable. And if, you're, if your faith is enough to trust in the God who did these things, to ask him to handle the, the small, to everybody else insignificant things that are just equally as miraculous in your own life, if you can trust him enough to have faith in him to ask him those things, he hears you. And if your sin is not keeping you apart from your God, your God will hear you and he will answer according to his will. Amen? Amen. Next week, we'll, uh, we'll jump off into chapter 11 and speed up a little bit, as if I'm not going fast enough. Amen? All right, thanks for your attention, and uh, we'll pray and get to the services this morning. Almighty God.